time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Some of you may be aware uh, here just before I begin the message that today is the launch of our uh, public launch of our brand new campus, our North Aurora campus. And we wanted to fill you in, uh, Andrew wanted to fill you in a bit on what's happening there today. So he made a little video for us to enjoy. So let's take a look at the screen. Last week here at Chapel Street, North Aurora, we celebrated our very first block party. We had hundreds of guests coming through this very lot. And this morning, we open our doors to the public for the very first time. We are so excited about what God is going to do in this community, and already we are hearing stories of ways in which He is at work in people's hearts. I would love for you to keep praying for us together as a church family that we really would be a place where people can experience God's grace, grow in their faith, and make an impact right where they are. Thank you so much to those of you who have given and prayed for this. This is an amazing moment, and it's the next step of the neighborhood church vision that we all share together. So again, thank you so much. Keep praying for us. We can't wait to see what's ahead here at Chapel Street, North Aurora. So you think Pastor Andrew's excited? <laughs> I love that guy. He just exudes excitement over this new uh, church, uh, this campus plant that we have going on there. And we will pray for Andrew in just a moment. Some of you know that one of my roles here at Chapel Street now is to mentor our younger pastors and staff members. I'm so proud of Andrew. Uh, we just got to know him about four years ago. He was volunteering in a student ministry, and Pastor Bruce said to me and Jeff, hey, you need to check out this, this British guy. He's got a real heart for the Lord and seems to have some gifts. And so we started to get to know him, and uh, these four years later, now he's one of our campus pastors. So I'm proud of uh, Andrew. We'll pray for them in just a minute. The other young guy I'm very proud of is Joe Scavato, Pastor Joe, who is currently serving in our group's ministry, preaches occasionally, and is the uh, pastor at our Saturday evening congregation. But I need to let you know that this uh, past Thursday evening, uh, his wife, Judy, who is expecting their first child, uh, a little boy, uh, her water broke at 28 weeks. And Joe was in California at a cohort meeting with our younger pastors, had to fly back. And she's uh, resting comfortably in the hospital, but looks like will be hospitalized all the way until her due date, which is until December. So we'll pray for them in this process, and we pray that the Lord will protect the life of that little unborn baby. So join me for prayer right now for North Aurora and for Pastor Joe's wife, Judy. Lord, thank you so much for the day. We thank you that we can worship you together, uh, that we can uh, praise your name through hymns and songs, and, and now as we prepare to open our, our hearts to your word as well. But we do thank you for the opportunity we have as a church family to launch a brand new campus in that community in North Aurora. We thank you for Andrew and how you uh, led him to us, and how you've grown his, his gifts in life, and now he's in just the perfect place of leadership there. Encourage his heart today. Uh, give them a great morning and um, uh, at, at, that, at, at that worship service, and may, may, may that uh, congregation have a great impact in that community in the days ahead. And Lord, we also pray for Joe and Judy uh, this morning. We know this is an anxious time for them uh, as, uh, as Judy uh, is in the hospital, and, and we ask that you would use uh, the skills and gifts of the, of the nurses and doctors there to uh, protect the life of this little one that you would uh, calm their hearts and give them comfort as they uh, go through these anxious days waiting for the arrival of their son. And we, we just lift them up to you today and thank you for your ministry to them. And now, as I said earlier, uh, use your word uh, to speak to each one of us this morning. In your name I pray. Amen. Well, I've never lived on a farm, uh, but I've always had a fascination with farms. 
this is me at about age, I don't know, two or three, standing way too close to a cow. I mean, like, what kind of parent lets that happen? I've been asking my parents this for years, but I think I'm fascinated with farms because they're so different from my everyday life. But I've always enjoyed uh, watching animals, even just farm animals like cows. I can stand outside a field and just watch cows like all day long. They just fascinate me. Uh, I think old barns are beautiful in their own way. When I drive through rural Illinois or Indiana, I love looking at old barns. I think I might even enjoy the process of, of harvesting. Uh, I've always kind of liked mowing my yard, you know, back and forth, back and forth. So I can imagine that running a giant combine through fields and would be kind of like mowing my grass on steroids, something like that. But a few years ago, uh, a farmer in our church, actually, I was talking like that, he actually invited me to come uh, and ride with him as he uh, uh, harvested like 215 acres of corn. So there's Farmer Brian next to the tractor acting like I know what I'm doing, which I don't. Uh, so I rode with them this day. For him, it was just another day of work, another day of, uh, out of six weeks of harvesting corn in the fall. But for me, it was uh, just a blast. It was like going to Disney World riding on one of the rides. First of all, these machines, if you haven't seen them, are just ginormous, huge complicated, high-tech machines. This combine had an air-conditioned uh, cabin and computer screens uh, mounted over all the controls, very high-tech, was powerful enough to move through this corn at like five miles an hour, just threshing the corn like mad, which is kind of amazing to watch. The second thing I noticed that day is I learned a lot about corn that I did not know. I learned that ideally, each corn stalk bears one ear of corn. I didn't know that. It can, they can bear more than that, but when it bears more than one ear of corn, there's a chance that corn is not as high quality. So one ear per stalk of corn. Uh, and I also learned that it just takes one-third of a bushel of seed to produce 200 bushels of corn. That's a 600-fold increase. Just amazing. And the third thing I learned that day is that farmers know a lot about dirt. <laughs> they just do. Uh, my friend farmer uh, could point to areas in the field as we drove through it, and he would say, now watch this computer screen up here that was measuring yield in real time. We was just measuring how much was being harvested. He said, watch, when we get to this area right here, that number's going to drop, because that soil right there has never been very productive in generations. It just hasn't been. And I would watch the number. Sure enough, it would come down. Then he'd say, watch when we go over here. This is the most productive area of this field. It, all the corn looked kind of the same to me. But to him, he knew that when we got there, the numbers would go up because that soil was good. And that little illustration leads us to our subject today. We're in this year-long series from the Gospel According to Mark called Following the King. We made available to you these little journals that have the entire gospel in them and some blank pages for making notes. We want to encourage you to use this as sort of a spiritual discipline throughout this whole year. You can mark in them, you can make questions, you can read ahead so you're prepared for what we're going to talk about on Sunday, but they're available out there in the lobby. I hope you'll uh, pick one up. But So what's been happening leading into the story we look at today? Well, last week we were in chapter 3 where Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath in the synagogue, the man with the withered hand. Remember, the story created quite a controversy. But after that, some stories we aren't covering in our preaching, that Jesus appointed all 12 of the disciples, the apostles, and then his own family uh, thinks he's lost his mind. It's a weird little story. But this is Jesus' own family want him to get help because he... Uh, thinks he's the Messiah of God. And that's kind of an interesting story. And then the Pharisees accuse him not just of healing on the Sabbath, but of being possessed by the devil. So lots going on in chapter 3. And here's where we pick up in chapter 4, 
verses 1 through 20. And this this uh, story comes in two parts. So I'll read the first part, and we'll talk about it a bit, and then I'll go to the rest of the passage. So chapter 4, verse 20. Excuse me, verse 1. Again, he began to teach beside the sea. So he's, he's next to the Sea of Galilee. Crowds are coming to him. In fact, the crowds are, are so large, we read that a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. So you can picture it. Jesus is pressed by this crowd all the way to the water's edge, gets in one of the fishing boats, and there he begins to teach the crowd that's gathered. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell onto good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. <coughs> Excuse me. Now this is a parable. This is one of Jesus' most well-known parables, uh, most memorable parables. And a parable uh, is simply um, an illustration of a spiritual truth. Uh, Jesus used these perfectly constructed little stories to illustrate truth about uh, the kingdom of God, truth about himself, and also truth about each one of us. That's the purpose of a parable. Now, uh, some of these parables are kind of cryptic and hard to understand. Uh, some of them are a little more easy to grasp and easier to understand. This one, I think, is one of the more clear, easier uh, parables that Jesus uses, uh, but he is going to go on to explain it. Now, notice what he says. Let him who has ears to hear hear, okay? He also says listen, and the words he uses for hear and listen are kind of intense forms of listening, kind of hyper-listening. It's listening with the intent to obey, like we would say someone who gets it. And so I don't often say this, we assume this, but I can say with great confidence today because of how this parable is constructed that God has something to say to every single one of us today. Because Jesus says, listen up. God is going to speak. And I'm saying to you this morning, listen up. He has something to say to you. Because we are each in this parable. There's no avoiding it. We are each in the parable. So Jesus goes on to explain this parable in verse 10. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. Now, he is the secret of the kingdom of God. That's what we're seeing as, as the gospel of Mark begins. Um, <clears throat> but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. So he says some are going to understand, and some are not going to understand. Verse 13, and he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? In other words, this is a pretty easy one. I think you should understand it. The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. And when they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, they immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. 
They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and, proves, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. So, what is Jesus teaching this ancient crowd, and what is he teaching us here today? Notice that there are three key images in this parable. Uh, there's the sower, and the sower is God himself, and this image in the parable never changes. This is what the sower does. This is what God does. He sows the seed. Then you have the seed. The seed is the gospel of the kingdom, and the seed stays the same. So the sower always sows, and the seed is always the gospel of the kingdom. The variable is the soil, and the soil is us. And Jesus talks about four kinds of soil, four kinds of hearts, four kinds of lives. First, he talks about what I would call the hardened heart, the hardened heart. I said earlier that I enjoy mowing my lawn. I've always enjoyed that, probably inherited it from my dad. But mowing the, my lawn kind of makes me feel like a farmer in a way. I love the smell, you know, freshly mowed grass. I love seeing the nice stripes in my yard. And I love finishing and then sitting on my porch with my iced tea, just gazing out over my kingdom of grass. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about. There's a real satisfaction that comes with that. Uh, and grass grows in all kinds of places. It grows in our yards. It grows on football fields. Uh, it can grow through asphalt parking lots. It can grow through the cracks of sidewalks. We, we had a patio put in less than a year ago behind our house. And already there's little sprigs of grass coming up between the bricks. Drives me crazy. But there's one place where grass never grows. That's under a children's swing set. Right? You know what I'm talking about? When our boys were very young, uh, we, I, I put a swing set behind uh, in our backyard. And within just like a couple of weeks, I noticed that the, the grass was, was, had been scraped bare by little feet underneath each of the swings and was, within a couple of weeks, just hard as rock and, and devoid of any vegetation. And we have not lived in that particular house for nearly 20 years now, but I almost guarantee if I went back there, I would still see those bare spots in the backyard because it's just, just were rubbed hard. So how does a heart, how does a life become trampled down and hardened? Well, one way, I think, is by pain. I think hearts can be hardened by pain. Uh, many years ago, my father, who served for some 60 years as a pastor, um, had to lead a very painful funeral service for a, a, a boy, eight or nine years old, who had passed away and had also lived all of his life with severe disabilities. Uh, so it was a very sad, sad time. Uh, the mother and sister on that family were part of my father's church, but the father never came. And in fact, the father did not want to have a funeral service. He just wanted to go to the cemetery and bury his son. But he finally agreed to come and let my dad do a small service at a funeral home. My father remembers as he stood up to the lectern to begin this sad funeral, uh, the father was sitting in a chair right in front of where my dad was, and the father whispered, muttered sort of through clenched teeth to my dad. He said, keep it short. Keep it short. And that's a sad phrase. I think that's a heart that's been worn by pain and bitterness, hardened. I think that might be what Jesus is talking about when he says in verse 14, the sower sows the word, 
And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. In Jesus' day, farmer's fields were not like they are today. They weren't vast tracts of 100 or 200 acres. They were small, probably the size of this room or, or not much bigger than that. And they were crisscrossed sometimes with these hardened footpaths where people walked to get where they wanted to go or by cart paths. And the farmers, when they sowed, they didn't have machines. They sowed by hand. So they would just cast the seed out over the, the entire field, not just on the good part of the field, but on all parts of the field, including the path which made it easy for birds to come along and snatch up the seed on the path. And that's the image Jesus puts in their minds. Now, what does Jesus have in mind when he talks about hardened soil? I don't know that man's full story, the story with my dad, but I've heard enough stories through the years that to know his heart was probably in the process of being hardened for a long time. Maybe it started with the birth of a son with severe disabilities. Maybe it started way before that. But pain as we all know, is inevitable in human life. Jesus said, in this world you will have troubles. Jesus himself was called by the prophet, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The Bible teaches that due to the curse of sin in the world, the world is broken, always has been, and will be until Jesus comes again. So our lives are filled with not only joys and successes and great blessings, but also with failures and pain. And, grief. and when we experience pain or loss, our hearts tend to either grow deeper and softer through faith or harder and harder through anger and bitterness. And notice, we must not, must not miss or underestimate the role of the one that Jesus calls uh, the evil one in this story. The evil one, of course, is Satan, who in other parts of Scripture is called the adversary or the enemy or the deceiver or the liar. And Satan, I believe, loves to harden hearts. Satan is the one who whispers to us when we experience hardship or pain or loss. He whispers to us and says, you think God loves you? Look, what's he done for you lately? You think he cares what's happening in your life? And he encourages our hearts to grow harder and harder through bitterness. And they eventually become resistant to truth, resistant to grace, resistant even to love. And hardened hearts just want to be left alone with their pain. Hardened hearts want to say, just keep it short. So hearts can be hardened by pain. Hearts can also be hardened by pride, by the sin of pride. During my final year in seminary, and I've told this story before, you may remember it, I was assigned to be a student chaplain in a large suburban hospital on an oncology wing. And my job to show up a couple times a week and just see if I could walk into rooms cold turkey with people I didn't know and offer some sort of prayer or ministry to them. Now, I'd grown up in the church. I'd been around ministry my whole life. But this was kind of outside my comfort zone because you, you don't know the people. You have no idea their spiritual background, no idea how receptive they are or not. So one day I got to the, uh, the floor and the head nurse said, hey, uh, I need you to go down and visit the, the man in room 502. So I walked down and walked in and... There was an elderly man lying in a bed, clearly very sick. I didn't realize it at the time, but I since have the experience of knowing that the coloring of his skin, kind of a yellowish, grayish tone, would have told me he was very, very near the end of his earthly life. I just knew he was sick. So I walked in, and he looked up, and before I could say a word, he said, who the blank are you? He, he, he cursed. And so I, I was kind of taken back, and I, I 
mumbled through, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a student chaplain, and I'm here, and I, before I even got through my sentence, he said, I don't need a blankety-blank chaplain, and he doubled down on the cursing. And now I wasn't really offended, I was just kind of shocked, I didn't expect that, and so I mumbled uh, sorry, and I just backed out of the room. Well, two days later, I had another, I had to go back again, because that was my assignment, I went back to the floor, and I decided I'm going to go back to that guy's room. I shouldn't have walked out. I'm going to go back to his room. I went back to the room, and the bed was empty. Found out that he had died later the same day I had visited the first time. And I'll never forget that, because I should have stayed, because I knew he needed the chaplain. He was just too proud to admit he needed the chaplain. Pride can harden hearts. Sin hardens hearts. All sin hardens hearts. The Bible says uh, sin uh, hardens our hearts, and of all those sins, pride might be the most dangerous because pride, by its very nature, resists the gospel, resists help. Pride keeps us from the freedom and humility of confession. So we have a heart hardened either by pain or by sin. How does a hard heart get broken up? How does the soil become turned over and tilled? Well, I think by a combination of confession and grace. In the Psalms that we read through, King David gives us beautiful pictures of the softening of hardened hearts through confession. In Psalm 40, we see a confession of pain. I don't have this on the screen, but let me read it for you. He writes, My tears have been my food day and night. While people say to me all day long, Where is your God? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. Do you know you can confess pain before the Lord and surrender it to him and trust his care? In Psalm 51, David gives us a confession of sin. It was actually his own sin. He writes, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. The confession of sin. Seeking the forgiveness and grace of God. So the hardened heart is tilled, broken up, softened through the combination of confession, honesty before God, and the grace he offers us in return. There's a second kind of soil. I'm calling this soil the shallow life. Shallow life. I worked, uh, many of you know, my way through graduate school by coaching a little bit of basketball at a small college. And every fall at this time of year when guys would come out for the team, I noticed a pattern. Every year there would be one or sometimes more than one guy who were coming out for the team for the first time. And they would be very enthusiastic, very excited. They'd be the first ones to the workouts, the first one to the weight room, finish sprints first. But as the days mounted, one day became two, two days became five, five days became 10, and their bodies began to cramp, their leg muscles cramped, their backs began to hurt. Their enthusiasm would sort of wane until finally, often, at least one or two would decide that maybe basketball wasn't for them. And I would always think to myself, well, the roots of their commitment didn't go really all that deep. Their commitment was shallow. Jesus says in chapter 4, verse 16, And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Jesus here, I think, is saying that the shallow heart is the person who at, who at first receives the gospel with joy and sometimes with great enthusiasm, but as the days goes on and as 
tribulation or persecution, when life gets hard, when faith gets hard, sometimes they say to themselves, you know, this isn't what I signed up for. God isn't really coming through for me like I thought he would. And they begin to, to wane in their commitment or maybe give up. So how does a shallow soil become deeper? Well, I think through a more mature understanding of God and his word. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 5. He says, therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through, through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But listen, now listen to what he says. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. You can hear the roots going down deeper and deeper into the gospel. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. And so the shallow heart or the immature heart is deepened through a persevering kind of faith to the development of spiritual character and an eternal perspective. And there's a third kind of soil. I'm calling this the cluttered life. The cluttered life. A few years ago, a friend gave us some tickets to a Cubs game. And our boys were all younger at that time, so we loaded up everybody in the family van and headed down to Wrigley Field. And as all of you know, driving into Chicago, whether you do it weekly or whether you do it twice a year like we do, can be either a relatively pleasant experience or a kind of harrowing traffic experience depending on time of day and traffic and all that. Well, this particular day it was smooth sailing until we got within, um, within the city limits and then it got a little bit crazy. Cars, it wasn't like a parking lot. Cars were still moving, but they were just bumper to bumper, traffic's moving fast, cars everywhere. And so it's, it's kind of a stressful time driving with four kids in the back and all that. And I looked across out my, drive, my, my wife's side window and there was a young woman driving a car right next to us in the lane next to us who literally had her phone pinned up against her steering wheel with both her thumbs, and she was texting while she was maneuvering through traffic at 55 miles an hour. You could see it, right? Now, personal uh, disclosure, I've been tempted on occasion to take a peek, you know? Stopped at a traffic light, you know, take, you take a peek or whatever. But seeing that woman doing that in the middle of traffic uh, I think about that every time now, and, I, and I, I put the phone away, because that was like a death wish for her and everybody driving near her. And Jesus is saying here, oh, by the way, did you know that a recent study found that distracted driving using your phone is six times more dangerous than driving under the influence of, of alcohol? Six times. Jesus here is saying that distracted living or a cluttered heart is equally as dangerous. Look at verse 18. He says, and others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Now, there's a little bit of debate here among scholars whether Jesus is using these images of, of shallow and, and uh, thorny soil to talk about those who have never received the gospel or about those who have received, but their growth is stunted. I tend to think it's the latter. That's just me uh, for two reasons. First, it seems that in both of these illustrations, the, so the seed did take root initially. So the, the gospel of the kingdom was received, but it just didn't grow very deep or didn't produce any fruit. Growth was stunted. The second reason I think this is the case is I've met a lot of people like that through the years. In fact, I think this soil, the thorny soil, 
uh, the distracted heart, the cluttered heart, is the defining soil type in our culture today. It's the defining soil type in North America. We live in an unprecedented time. And I'm not talking about the virus. Viruses have been around for all of human civilization. Pandemics have been around. I'm talking about information. We are bombarded by information, more information in a week today than people living in the 18th century saw in an entire lifetime. Think about that. Through social media, through TV, radio, print, we are bombarded by information. We are distracted by many, many things. By politics, by social media, by wealth and comfort, by entertainment. And look at that last line again, Jesus says, and it proves unfruitful. Makes me think of an apple tree with no apples, or a corn stalk with no corn. There's something sad, even tragic, about an apple tree with no apples or a corn stalk with no corn. Think about our own lives for a moment. Who wants to get to the end of their life and see written on their tombstone, eh, unproductive, unfruitful? No one wants their life to be, end up being unfruitful. And Jesus, but Jesus is saying the way to get to that destination is to live a distracted, cluttered life. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. What he's saying is that the distracted heart, the cluttered heart, must be confronted by the priority of the gospel, by the authority of the king. That the kingdom gospel is not one thing among many in our cluttered lives, but must become the most important thing that then organizes all the other things in their proper place. There's a fourth kind of seed, and that is the fruitful life. A number of years ago, I did a wedding for a young couple right here in this uh, sanctuary. I got to know them uh, over the previous year or so. And the young woman had grown up in the church with a strong believer. The young man, uh, when they met and fell in love, had, was not a believer, had not grown up in, the, in church or in a Christian family, and was a complete stranger to the gospel and to Jesus and to the Bible. But through his fiance, he began to come to church, he began to learn, he began to become, he began, became very interested in spiritual things, and eventually he gave his life to Christ and became a follower. Well, we did their wedding, and it was a beautiful ceremony and all that. And then um, about several months afterward, I decided to get together with him and see how, his, how things were going, particularly in how his faith was going. Now, to give you a little background, he had grown up, I said, uh, not in a church background. He had grown up with a lot of pain in his life. Uh, the soil of his heart had been hardened and, and consumed many things. And one of the things he had struggled with his whole life was a temper. Uh, he was an angry young man, and he had lots of reason to be angry, and it would cause problems in his workplace. He'd get frustrated. He would literally get in fist fights with bosses, get fired. Happened multiple times. Really a problem. So I, I got together with him, and I said, so how's everything going? He goes, hey, it's been really good. And he goes, Pastor Brian, I've, I've noticed something really weird happening. I said, I said, what's that? He said, well, you know, I've always had this problem with my temper. Uh, I lose control. I just, I just have, it's got me all sorts of trouble. But he said, over the last, last few months or so, he said, I've, I still have the same stressful job, uh, but when things come up, I don't find myself getting 
nearly as angry. And when I get angry, I, I don't, I don't uh, spout off. I, I, don't, I, I don't abuse people. I, I'm, I'm handling it better. And I said, yeah, that's a really interesting thing. Uh, I, I think I can tell you what's going on, but I don't want to spook you. He goes, what's that? I goes, well, remember when I told you that when you come to faith in Christ, Jesus not only gives you salvation, forgives your sin, he also uh, puts the Holy Spirit in your life, that the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in your life and begins to change things in your life. And he went, really? I kind of remember that. And I said, well, here's what he does. And I quoted Galatians 5.22 to him. I said, the fruit of the Spirit, what the Holy Spirit wants to build in your life all the time, all of us, what he's trying to grow in us all the time is love, joy, peace, patience. Kindness, goodness, and self-control. And when I said self-control, he got the biggest smile on his face, and he said, that is so cool, he said. <laughs> and I said, yes, Tom, it certainly is that. Mark 4, 20, Jesus says, but those who are sown, uh, those who are sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. So, What's God saying to us? I told you at the beginning, he's going to say, he's going to speak to us, to each one of us. What's he say? First, he's telling us that God is kind of like a farmer. Creator of all things, the glorious Lord of the universe is like a farmer. He loves to grow things. And what he loves to grow is his kingdom in us and through us. Secondly, remember way back in the book of Genesis, we read, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed in his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. You see it there? Did you hear it? He created us from dirt. The Bible says, from dust we come, to dust we shall return. The uh, Bible says, it's not the most glamorous image perhaps, but it's true. And it tells us something important about God. It tells us that God loves dirt. He loves dirt. He loves soil. He loves all kinds of soil. He, he loves to get his hands dirty in our lives. The question is, what kind of dirt are we today? What kind of soil best describes the hearts in this room this morning? Hardened? On the way to become a hardened? By pain? Or maybe some sin, pride? Resistant to the work of the Holy Spirit? Or shallow? A kind of superficial, skin-deep faith that, that withers a bit when things get difficult or don't go your way. Or maybe thorny, maybe weed-infested, uh, distracted by so many things, unfocused and unproductive. Or soft, deep, and receptive. And the key diagnostic question Jesus gives us today is, are we growing? Are we growing? Is our faith producing fruit? That is, good things, kingdom things, in us and through us in others. That's the question. And here's the thing about seeds. The beautiful thing about seeds in this image. When the soil is good, and any farmer will tell you this, when the soil is good, the seed will always grow. Will always grow. And when the seed of the gospel grows in a life, that life always produces fruit. Always. 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. That's what the Lord has to say today. Would you bow with me as I close?
Lord Jesus, we thank you today for this beautiful little story, a simple illustration, really, but profound because it says something to each one of us. Thank you for being a God that loves all kinds of soil, all kinds of dirt. Thank you for being a God who is willing to get your hands dirty in the soil of our lives, to break it up where it needs to be broken up, to soften it where it needs to soften, to produce good fruit. And where there are hearts here this morning, maybe hardened or on the way to being hardened by pain or by sin, I ask you to soften them through confession and grace. And where there are shallow or cluttered hearts, and we are all so distracted sometimes, I ask you to deepen us by clarifying our hearts and growing our roots deep into your word as a priority. And then, Lord, by your spirit, may we become those who bear much fruit for your kingdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name.